listening to Law, Life and Culture with Betsy Kim on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Thank you, Harry Droz and Paul Bass. I'm Betsy Kim. Today I'm with New Haven journalist, author, and filmmaker Steve Hamm, who's still pushing for a pivot to a more sustainable world. Steve, welcome to our program. It's great to be on it. Great to meet you. Well, thank you. First off, breaking news. People are hearing it first on WNHH 103.5 FM. Steve, I understand you are making a new documentary, Mayan Sunrise. Can you tell us what it's about? Yeah. Yeah. So we, our film so far, the last five, we've made five films are all community building, very locally oriented, set in New Haven or Connecticut. This one, Mayan Sunrise, is really, uh, we're kind of going global with this one. But it's the, it's the story about the indigenous people of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, and they've borne the weight of colonialism, genocide, the decline of the traditional industries, globalization, the tourist, you know, onslaught, onslaught, all that kind of stuff. But the amazing thing is that Mayan culture has been very resilient. And um, so I, I learned about this because I have a friend who's a Mexican-American. And her name is Tay Mariana Stetler. And she lives down in Valladolid, which is right in the middle of the Yucatan Peninsula. And she moved there years ago. But she got interested in uh, traditional clothing crafts and actually created a museum for traditional clothing crafts. And really, then she's become an advocate for people kind of uh, asserting themselves and empowering themselves and and kind of keeping their culture alive. And, and down in the Yucatan, there are hundreds and hundreds of villages which are Mayan villages. I mean, nobody who isn't Mayan, Mayan lives in them. They're traditional houses and crafts, and, and the, there's a Mayan language. In fact, there's, I guess, each, each country down in Central America has a different version. I mean, Mexico's North America, but, you know, they have a, a version of Mayan. And a lot of the older people just speak that, not even Spanish. These are not Hispanics. These are Mayans. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really very interesting story, yeah. So when do you plan to complete and release your film? Well, this one will be done pretty quickly. We're, my, we're going down to, to Mexico in a, a week from now to do basically 14 or 15 days of, of shooting and interviewing and, and the initial editing. And we'll, we'll make two versions, one in Spanish and one in English. And we're going to try to get them in film festivals, on public television in both countries. So hopefully by, you know, the late summer or fall, it'll be available for, for people in different ways. And typically in this area, I, I do approach all the libraries with the films and they make it part of their programming. So that, well, good that'll luck be one that. way. Yeah, one last thing I just want to ask about is if any of your listeners are of Mayan heritage from Mexico, or they know people who are and who might be willing to participate. Part of the film is going to look at people who of Mayan heritage who've emigrated, who are in America, and basically what they're doing here and how they think about their culture and, and how they maintain it. So people can get in touch with me at steveham31 at gmail.com. Ham with two M's. Oh, great. So you've already discussed this book, The Pivot, Addressing Global Problems Through Local Action with Babs Rawls-Ivy 
on Love Babs Love Talk on August 9th, 2022. So I urge our listeners to listen to that very interesting program for more background. But Steve, do you consider Mayan Sunrise a continuation of your book, The Pivot in Action, in many ways, by taking on global problems through your action yeah. of making another film? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's certainly part, uh, it continues the theme. The essence of The Pivot and the book, The Pivot, is the idea that in times of crisis, like right now with COVID and the climate crisis and other things, you know, in times of crisis, there's an impulse that's very human to pull together and to try to deal with the crisis and to try to not just kind of like survive it, but to make things better, to pivot to a better direction. And that's the idea behind the book, The Pivot, behind Pivot Projects. And when I make films, and I work with Scott Amore, he, he and I are creative partners, the goal is always to improve society, can we set off in a new direction? Can we change people's minds? Can we get people inspired? Can we do something different? So yeah, it is exactly along those lines. Uh, people, you know, we can't leave it to, you know, government to solve our problems for us. We as people, as communities, I believe we have the power and we can make a difference. Now, my reading of your book was The Pivot explains this colossal project with multiple work streams, and the project uses technology to organize data and assist with devising solutions to today's yeah. serious problems. Yeah. And catalyzed by COVID-19, the project created systems to try to make the world healthier and more sustainable, preparing for pandemics like COVID-19, yeah. fighting yeah. climate change, and addressing racial and socioeconomic inequalities. Did I get that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you described me the book and it seems very well. My only quibble is the word colossal. It was global, but at the, at the peak, probably no more than 200 people were involved. So it was, it was from people from all around the world with different points of view and different, you know, backgrounds and different expertise coming together uh, to, to, you know, with the idea that through diversity, you get better ideas uh, through collaboration. You get better ideas. We use systems thinking, which is which is this idea that unless you see problems within their larger context and how they relate to other things, you can't really solve them. And then we did use some artificial intelligence tools to help with analysis and things things like that. And uh, you know, I think a bunch of interesting ideas came out of them. I, I mentioned some of the book, but there are some of the. I mean, most of the projects have. You know, it's been three years. Most of the projects have died down. Two, uh, actually three of them are still active. One is a group of the Pivot Projects volunteers who are working with groups of young people in the, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Nepal around uh, changing the systems for small stakeholder farmers. And so that one, that one is very much still going. Uh, another one is... Uh, there's a group that's kind of right. They're creating something called uh, UN 2.0. It's the idea that rewriting a, a UN charter so it's really about people, not about countries. Uh, and uh, so they're they're still working on that. And the other one, just locally, I mean, a lot of there are a lot of small local things that came out of it. And I came back and said, hey, how do I take these ideas and make put them to use in New Haven? And so we came up with this idea of reimagining New Haven in the era of climate change, and it's this 
grassroots ad hoc group that started early last year. And we actually, you know, the purpose is to raise awareness of climate change, to get all of our, all the people's voices involved and see if we can catalyze action. We had a climathon, big gathering in, in, in Fairhaven in late October. And now we have a couple of projects. We have a poster contest. We're, we're putting together a hyper-local sustainability guide, things like this. So uh, some good things have come out of it. And, you know, I, I brought it home. Okay. So what's your assessment on where we're at now, thinking of the global challenges, the overall big problems, compared to November 2021, when your book was first published? Yeah. Well, it was published at the time of COP26. I was in Glasgow with a, a bunch of members from the group. And I think that was, a, that was a moment of kind of optimism about climate, uh, because there were a lot of, you know, whenever there's a, a COP, you know, this is the UN climate conference that happens every year. There's usually pledges and activity and stuff like that. But I got to tell you, my assessment of progress, it's a mixed bag. Uh, you know, the threat of COVID has receded somewhat, though we're obviously not through it. Um, a lot more is being said and written about climate uh, change in the past few years than, than before, ever before. Uh, but it's not clear to me that the world's Governments or businesses really are truly planning on doing something about it, committed to it. And meanwhile, you know, fascist organizations and, and movements are doing tremendous damage all around the world. You know, Russia and in, in Ukraine, you know, you look at, you look at China, you look at uh, Afghanistan, uh, you look at the Republican Party in the, in the United States, the role that's playing in, in Washington, D.C., our Congress is now essentially run by people who cheered on an attempted coup against our nation that would have ended democracy. They now control the House of Representatives. And so I, I'd say we need some more pivoting. <laughs> right? yeah. You know, similar to you, writer and environmental activist George Monbiot also connects fighting climate change to larger social issues. And Monbiot has a video that articulates some of the same ideas in your book, where you write about business consultant Damien Costello, for example, yeah. who believes capitalism is ripe for a fall. And the book states the neoliberal regime that has emerged after World War II with a focus on consumerism had a tight grip on the global economy, but the wealth created by the system was increasingly being accumulated into the hands of a few and the forces of production it had unleashed were laying waste to the environment. So Harry, could you play George Monbiot's video for us for our discussion? Every human being grows. We grow through childhood and then when we hit adulthood, we reach a plateau. Our body has a regulating system which stops growth beyond a certain point. Occasionally, that system breaks down and a cell begins to multiply and to grow without regulation. And we call that cancer. Cancer is basically infinite growth within a finite living system, which is the human body. That is exactly what is happening with capitalism. Capitalism is dependent on infinite growth within a finite living system, which is the planet. Capitalism is the planet's cancer. And just like cancer in the human body, 
we have to cut it out. All through my adult life I've been railing against corporate capitalism and consumer capitalism and crony capitalism and these are the real problems. And it's taken a long time for the penny to drop. Maybe the problem isn't the kind of capitalism, maybe the problem is capitalism. So let's look at the planetary disaster. We're losing the soil, we're losing the fresh water, we're losing the insects, we're losing all the other astonishing species that we share this planet with. We're losing the coral reefs, we're losing the rainforests, we're losing everything. And it's all going at a phenomenal rate. What's causing this? The driving force is economic growth. A global economy growing at 3% a year doubles every 24 years. And then it doubles again and then it doubles again. That's the trajectory we're supposed to be on. That's what governments want, where it just keeps doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling, which would be just fine if the planet was growing at the same rate. But we live on a finite planet. An infinite growth on a finite planet is a recipe for catastrophe. The only way it's been done so far is to use ever-increasing areas of the world as places we effectively steal from. Where the most powerful parts of the world extract materials and cheap labour from the weaker parts of the world. And then ever greater parts of the world have to be used as a dump, to dump our waste. Until basically the whole world is an extraction zone and a dump. The whole atmosphere is a dump for carbon dioxide. Our cities are a dump for air pollution. Our Land is a dump for all the junk that we use for a day or two and then get bored of and pass on. Which you have to do if economic growth is going to continue. If you've got enough money you can buy a piece of land. You can buy the right to pollute the atmosphere with your private plane. You can buy a bluefin tuna steak despite the fact that you're driving a species into extinction. You can buy mahogany furniture whose extraction is causing massive destruction in the Amazon. Money translates into a right to natural wealth. Why? What's a just principle? There isn't one. And yet that unjust assumption is at the heart of capitalism. And those who are able to accumulate or inherit or grab enough money can then use that money to grab a huge chunk of our common treasury, our common resources, the stuff we all depend on to survive. And then they act like they have a natural right to do whatever they want with that. If everyone tried to live like the very rich today, we would need multiple planets, five planets, ten planets, a hundred planets. But we've only got one. But if instead you say, let's have luxury, but make it public luxury. Let's have fantastic public swimming pools, brilliant public parks, great tennis courts, great art collections, great museums, great community centers, great youth centers, great playgrounds, all those wonderful things that we try to accumulate for ourselves, but let's do it publicly. Then in creating that space, you don't take space away from other people, you create space for other people. You don't need to multiply those resources again and again and again as everyone tries to do it privately. By doing it publicly, you need far fewer resources. You can have a really rich, fulfilling life with very high standards of human well-being, but without the environmental destruction. And in so doing, we create community, where community has been smashed apart by capitalism. I don't think there's another way we're going to get through this century. If we carry on believing that 
People who are rich today can live like the oligarchs and people who are poor today can live like the rich and everyone can just expand and expand and expand and accumulate and accumulate, which is what capitalism tells us to do. And that we can just keep on multiplying GDP and we can double economic activity every 24 years like we're doing at the moment, then the only possible outcome is catastrophe. We need a whole new economic system. Double down has been achieved. So, Steve, what did you think about Mambia's description of the state of our economy and our planet? Well, I agree with much of what he said. I mean, I've felt for a very long time, and I've been a, a business writer and a technology writer for most of my career. I've felt for a long time that the way capitalism is being practiced is incompatible with global sustainability, and also with democracy. Um, the idea, you know, he, he makes a, a leap from the critique of capitalism to something vastly different. And of course, you know, the world tried something vastly different, and it was a horrible failure that was, that, you know, kind of like devolved into brutality, genocide, and, and, and authoritarianism. So. You know, is there some, you know, alternative to capitalism that is more humane and more sustainable? Uh, I don't know of it as a, as a model, but I can tell you, and I think you, we referred to this, is that the, the Pivot Projects group kind of looked at this and said, the first impulse is to burn it down. The second impulse is how can you kind of plant seeds and encourage the growth of alternative approaches to living within the capitalist system. And hopefully, as they succeed, more people are influenced, more people live that way, this kind of thing. So it's more like this idea of a, a gradual takeover from, <laughs> from the grassroots uh, um, to just, you know, infuse a lot more human, humanistic behavior and just behavior and sustainable uh, activity into the way we live. And, you know, the, the, the Pivot Projects people, you know, had this idea, they called it, the, for, for discussion purposes, they called it the cellular economy, this idea of these little cells are created by people who share ideas and share values. And, and they, and some of them could be, you know, you know, for profit, some could be not profit, some could be not even not even formal entities, just just uh, initiatives of different kinds. And I I have a lot of faith in that because I really feel like uh, like I said before, we can't wait around for government to solve our problems. We as as neighbors and as communities, uh, we can have good ideas and we can get things going on the ground and do it that way. So. Yeah. So what are some of the ideas that could work towards the solutions um, where it's not capitalism run amok that's destroying the environment and too much aggregation of wealth in the few? I mean, I think I some people feel a little wary with these public-private partnerships because in a way it becomes our dollars, taxpayer dollars, and then in the end you see an exorbitant um, distribution distribution of wealth that it wasn't exactly what you bargained for, but at the same time, 
some solutions are being reached. Like, for example, the vaccines with COVID-19, everyone's very glad, I think most people are, um, that things transpired in that way. But then there was a massive transfer of wealth where other bits of our social um, safety network seem those issues aren't resolved at all. Meanwhile, some of the private companies such as Pfizer and Amazon and other companies just profited tremendously. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I think the, you know, the vaccine, our example of the best that you can get or we've seen getting out of public-private partnerships. Um, There are other models. Um, I think that in order to redistribute wealth, we have to do that through taxes. And in order to do that through taxes, you have to have a global agreement, which the Biden administration was has been in conversations with, with other countries. Because if one country has this really kind of progressive tax structure, people are free just to pick up and, and operate from another place where they where they're they're not burdened by it, take their money elsewhere. Um, and, you know, you see that in negative ways, you see it in positive ways. I mean, there was an article in the New York Times today about how all these rich entrepreneurs from China have moved to Singapore, you know, and they're, and we see they're, they're moving because there's, they're leaving an oppressive system. Well, tax cheats will, you know, go to where they don't have to pay taxes or where they can acquire more wealth and have more power. So it seems to me that that's a very fundamental thing. And, uh, you know, this whole idea of not paying taxes, of taxes being some kind of evil or something oppressive is very pervasive in our society. I mean, this whole, you know, the whole, a lot of the Republican Party is built on this, the idea that I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to pay taxes that support some value, give some value to someone else. You know, that that's an oppression. And as long as you have a belief system like that, a fundamental belief system, which is all for the self and none for the good of of us as a group, uh, it's very hard to solve any problems, you know. So I, I don't have any magic bullet for how you change attitudes. I mean, I think, you know, in the films that I make, I try to change attitudes through telling good stories and, and making points without attacking people. Except I did make one film about fentanyl, which was which was very hard edged and kind of hey, people think this, they're wrong, that kind of thing. But generally, I, I try to to change people's minds or, or influence their consciousness in other ways. And you know, I think there's a lot of good art being made along those lines. I think there's a lot of good art in our town. I mean, I see. You know Susan Clenard, the the sculptor. Her work is is aimed at op- at changing minds and raising awareness. And I I think it's a really important role for the artist. You're listening to author, journalist, and filmmaker Steve Ham on WNHH 103.5 FM in New Haven, Connecticut. So Steve. Getting back to what you referenced a little earlier in our conversation, can you address a bit more how anything can get done to move the needle even in our political system that's so broken where there were 147 Republicans who tried to overthrow our elections? 
What end takeaways in your book of empathy with people having different experiences and recognizing that we're all in this together be a little overly optimistic? Well, uh, you could say it's overly optimistic. I mean, I, I believe that a powerful and positive influence and, and, and impulse in people is to pull together in times of crisis and try to make things better. Uh, and I believe that the notion that we are all into this together is um, a very strong idea that has probably been around for about 40,000 years when little tribes or family groups of early Homo sapiens, you know, gathered around the fire in the caves and all that kind of stuff. But I, but I think there's a dialectic here. We have these two very powerful ideas. The idea that we're all in this together and the other idea, which is basically we're not all in this together. We should just, you know, just think about ourselves and get what we can and try not to give to anybody else. Those are two very powerful ideas. They may seem like exaggerations, but I, I think they're not. I think those are the, the core impulses that drive a lot of behavior. And I think, you know, we've seen beautiful examples of this collective thing. I mean, I'm, we've had we've seen some failures of collectivism. Obviously, I've mentioned that. You know, uh, the Soviet Union, uh, Communist China. Those are two examples. But you see great example. I mean, the labor unions are examples of the power of the community of, of people growing in together and caring for each other and caring for each other's welfare. Unfortunately, labor unions have almost disappeared from America. Um, the the power the capitalists have been extremely successful both in themselves and then through using government to crush the people. So I think there are you know I I don't say that this is like kumbaya you know we're just going to sing together, but I think we have to try. I think we have to identify this beautiful thing, this idea of we're all in it together, and think about how we can use that idea and bring power to it and actually get something done with it. Now, if I gave up, if I said there's no hope for that idea, I'd have a really hard time existing in this world. I mean, I'm not I'm not a guy who thinks a lot about suicide, but if I did not believe that there was hope for for the idea of of, of we're all in this together, I I I I couldn't I don't think I could live. So, it's, you know, I mean, there are many, many examples of art or great literature or great essays, you know, like the U.S. Constitution, <laughs> things like this that are fantastic expressions of hopefulness and of, and of you know, ideas and even plans for how to, to go forward with it. And I, I think uh, hopefully we'll continue with these kinds of things. You know, I... You know, I look at the co the Congress of the United States, and I look at the fact that the anti-democratic people have taken over the Congress, and you know, basically these are fascists. And uh, you know, but I I just hope that given time, uh, people who are you know who have better ideas, voters I'm talking about here, who who have a, a clearer more optimistic, more humanistic vision of the world will assert themselves uh, 
and that um, you know, and that you know the tide will be turned. You know, there is no no such thing as an ultimate answer because hopefully the humanity keeps on going for you know thousands of years or whatever. Uh, but you know, we'd like to see the next. I I I I believe in progress. I hope for progress. I always like to say, oh, things will get better in the in the in the future, and and hopefully they will. So what became of the Pivot Project's model of healthy prosperity? And are Pivot Project's volunteers still trying to get the attention of governments to incorporate at least some of their ideas in public policy? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, in, the, in, the, in the early days of Pivot Projects, in the first year and a half or so, you know, some members of the group actually have the ear of government. Some people there were active in the UN and writing policy proposals, technical proposals, and a lot of those were submitted. And I think there was there was some acceptance of some of the ideas. Um, you know, at this point, I think the the thing I'd point to, you know, about around healthy prosperity, is this idea that I mentioned a little while before about UN 2.0. And this is a group of people within Pivot Projects have been working for, I would say, at least a year. It was actually, it was the idea of a Canadian woman who is, was, just got her PhD in the UK and kind of made her, her PhD thesis and then brought this to the Pivot Projects. And this was the idea of kind of like, you know, we have the UN, it does a lot of good, it does a lot of you know, there's a tremendous amount of um, grandstanding, I guess you'd call it, things like that. Some things that you wouldn't or say so are, are so powerful. And of course, the Security Council. You know, there's some there's some countries in the Security Council that are that are malicious. You know, so it's so it's it's very hard to get good things done. And but you don't want to exclude them from the UN and the Security Council because without that you have no you have no leverage you have no influence on them, so they have to be they have to be included. So but this this whole idea of UN 2.0, you know it's a it's a charter. It's like if we were going to do it all over again, how would we do it? And of course, given we're, we're now you know eighty years advanced or whatever from when it was, almost eighty years. So I think that's something good, and they're apparently about to publish uh, their their work. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. In fact, I think it may even be tomorrow. The group is going to make a presentation back to Pivot Projects, and I'll I'll make sure to send you. If I get some good links, I'll send them to you for you for you to share. But I think I think that's one of the the really cool things that I see uh, happening. I got to tell you this, and this is a little odd, but. Not, it's not it's not an example of the pivot projects, but it's an example of the, uh, an alignment. Part of my family came from a little town in southeastern Kansas, a little farm town, and my great great grandparents uh, were there. Some of the first Europeans to live there, and uh, they created this little town. And the little town was a, in Kansas. It was an anti-slavery town. It was a stop on the Underground Railroad, for which it paid a price, being attacked repeatedly and people slaughtered. But it's a little town that had its peak at a probably about 1920. And, uh, you know, peak populations. And then, of course, 
automation and all the things that happened to farming happened and now and it became a little bit of a hollow shell but some cousins of mine went into that and said let's try to revitalize this town and make this and show that small towns can be revitalized and and you can live in a small town and have a rich uh life with great experiences and great friendships and and great community activities and and they've uh they've worked on that and that town was last year you know the the new york times says there are 52 places to live to uh, to, to visit new haven was in the most recent one well uh a year ago this little town of humboldt kansas was one of those 52 places and it was just and i think it was just a beautiful sign that these places that a lot of people have forgotten or given up on and feel like there's no hope well there is hope there is hope for them and uh, so that's an example of a kind of a healthy prosperity it's 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 not an over you know these are not rich people it's about living within your means but having a vibrant life without waste without a lot of waste yeah now with babs you said your book the pivot was not written for scientists or policymakers and some of my friends who i feel would particularly like this book include business school graduates who study organizational behavior and business management um, as would computer software and tech people, because you explain tech tools like Kumu and Spark Beyond and augmented intelligence for yeah. problem solving. And people who want to connect to others to fight climate change can learn the names of big players, especially in the tech space. But on 269, page 269, yeah, yeah, yeah. you take the book a little beyond that notion, writing, we as individuals must join together to save ourselves and each other. I think as a DIY saving our planet, uh, this book is a DIY saving our planet. And if you're looking for a punchline at the end of this book, that is it. So can you explain what you meant? Sure, sure. So, you know, when I got involved in the Pivot Projects, I went in as an embedded journalist invited to kind of observe and record and and then write a book about what I saw and make connections. And then, uh, and then after I finished the book and handed it over to my publisher, Columbia University Press, I said, well, what do I do next? And I said, well, I'm going to go in as a participant. And I went in as a participant. And, you know, out of that came a couple of the films, things like that. And, but, uh, you know, just I, I got involved and, and I, I had this, I really felt like you know we were talking about these ideas. How do we, how do we actually have impact on the ground? You've got to take these big ideas and apply them to your own town. It's like to the you know bring them back home, customize them, get a bunch of people together and do something. And I, I talked earlier about uh, reimagining New Haven in the era of climate change, and that was an example of that. And there there are many other examples. One very early in the in the uh, pivot projects process. Some people in Exeter, England, very much embraced this. The, the, the uh, people from the city, uh, civic groups, the university, uh, uh, all went at this and, 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 and did it in a very kind of, you know, weekly meetings kind of thing and, and projects. And I think they, you know, they ended up with projects like, you know, 
people invest, uh, you know, community investments in solar arrays so that you can very directly, you don't have to think, oh, am I, when I choose a alternative energy on my UI bill, is it really alternative energy? You know, you can say, well, yeah, let's do this locally. So that's the DIY, the do it yourself. We can't wait for government and business to solve our problems. We can't wait, for, you know, we can't expect Justin Elliker with all of the problems this city has, you know, to, to, uh, you know, to fix this for us. You know, he's got, you know, he's appointed Steve Winter to be the head of the sustainability czar, and Steve is a, a wonderful, bright, resourceful young man, and hopefully good things will come out of that, you know. But we, uh, you know, we can't wait for government to solve our problems, and we can't just kind of pretend like, oh, avert our eyes, these will be solved by somehow. Like within the technology world, which I, I spent a lot of time in, there's this whole thing of, oh, technology will solve this. Well, in fact, recently, somebody said to me, oh, when we have these AI computers, we're going to get 100 years of scientific progress in a year, and climate change will no longer be a problem. Well, that is the most ridiculous kind of magical thinking that, and it relieves you of the burden of actually thinking. That's what that's what a lot of a lot of magical thinking is about. Oh, I don't want to think. I just want to. Think. I want to believe in some crazy uh, intercession that was is going to save us, and we don't have to lift a finger. So you know, so do it yourself. Lift a finger. Get all your fingers together. Get everybody's fingers. Um, you know, and I think you know, like I said, I talked. I've talked about the reimagining New Haven. The idea behind reimagining New Haven was not that we would get, create another group or another uh, 501c3, but that it was a, it was a catalyst, a spark, a, or awareness raising. The plan of this group is to essentially go out of existence. I mean, we we have a plan for spending our last dollar, and then that's the end of that's the end of our financial uh, 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 infrastructure. You know that kind of thing. So I, I think you can have all sorts of different. Things that, that you don't have to say, oh, I'm starting this thing. It's going to be a commitment for years, and I, it's going to be so dear. Get something going. Do it. See where it goes. Maybe it doesn't go anywhere. Try something else. I think these are the kinds of things that uh, we need to do as, as individuals, as small groups of people, as communities. It's very exciting, by the way. It's an exciting yeah. life. A while back, I interviewed Tochi Onyebuchi, who wrote Goliath, and it was a science fiction in which humans trash the Earth so much that in the future, white flight means moving to the moon. And in our conversation, Tochi's opinion was there's a bit too much messaging on what individuals need to do. And by sorting our garbage or buying compostable plastic, that's not going to save the world. And to make a point, he put it, this way, that maybe five people, like the CEO of ExxonMobil, they're the ones who are really destroying the planet, and we'd need political action to make changes happen. But as we talked in this conversation a bit earlier, with all the rampant misinformation, we won't have an informed population yeah. for a meaningful participatory democracy. So yeah. how will we ever achieve the political will even if pivot projects come up 
with realistic models mm. and steps to implement. Yeah, well, I think that's those are all very legitimate concerns. And, you know, I think progress has to be made at every level. You know, multinational, governmental, state, you know, national, state, local, business, business groups. I mean, uh, I think the guy, his name is Larry Fink of Blackstone or Blackrock. This is the, the guy who's behind the ESG movement or really been powerhousing and saying, you know, we have, you know, a trillion dollars under management. We're looking at the companies that we put it into to see if they're doing sustainable things or if they're just, you know, bullshitting about it. We want, and we want to see an accounting of, of these things. And he came out and said that, and of course, has been attacked mercilessly, you know, and from all sides on that. But I think there, you know, there's a role for business leaders like him to say, make a broad statement. There's a, there's a technology company called Salesforce.com. The leader of it is uh, Mark Benioff out of San Francisco. And they've just done, from their beginning, they had like a triple bottom line attitude and and they've really done a lot with sustainability as an example. They even created software that companies can use to kind of you know make their sustainability plan and monitor it, you have metrics, things like that. So I think, you know, there, there are some good uh, business people who get behind it. I think you need incentives. I think government has to make incentives to help these things move along. I don't think they, they happen on their own. Uh, you, need to, you need to kickstart it. And of course, there's, you know, the fact that the fossil fuels industry is extremely rich and extremely powerful and owns, you know, large swaths of the political establishment in America. And that's very hard to overcome. Uh, I think one of the strongest things we have going for us is our universities. And because uh, I think, you know, there's a, the, the reason that the, that the right wing is, attack, is attacking universities so, you know, so aggressively is because they recognize that if people are well-educated and they're critical thinkers and they have access to knowledge, you know, the right wing ideology is not going to fly with them. So, yes, they attack, they attack everything that is a, is a threat to them. So I, I, I hope the universities can remain these powerful, you know, sources of inquiry and knowledge gathering and sharing and honesty. Um, I think a lot of them are. But, you know, then you see, like, in, in Florida, just, there's a, there was like a university, one of the little branches of the university, I forget what it's called, was kind of dedicated to free thinking. He's basically taken it over and putting fascists in charge of it to make sure there's no free thinking there. So it's, uh, you know, so, so this is not a battle that, I mean, the battle has to be fought and people have to recognize this, the, the tremendous value. You know, and here we have Yale and New Haven and, you know, in many ways, Yale is, contributes mightily to the world and to society. But the, the members of Yale's board of directors, these are the powers of, of the corporations. They're the, they're the ones who, who want to keep the power and want to keep the money. And the concentration of wealth, man, that serves them, you know. Uh, and exploitation of natural resources, that serves them. So it's very difficult for universities to, uh, 
to kind of keep the faith, you know. And I think it's it's a battle that's not just internal, external, but it's internal, very deeply internal. So these are these are some huge challenges and not easy. You also made the documentary The Oystering Life. Can you briefly describe it and explain why you made the film? Yeah. So out of pivot projects came this idea of how do we how do we raise consciousness about the complex relationship between humans and and the rest of nature and how do we help people understand how they might have to change their behavior or, or and and you know have less of an impact stuff like that but you don't want to, but the idea was you know it really doesn't work to kind of like point the finger of blame or lecture or hector or shame those are not effective uh, communications techniques. Uh, storytelling that helps people understand things better, that engages them, uh, gives them ideas, that's the way to do it. So we made uh, a River Speaks about the Mill River and really about, it's really a metaphor for the relationship between humans and the rest of nature, and our responsibilities and our impacts. And then out of that came the oystering life. And, uh, you know, oysters are this incredible phenomenon, these, these animals that live in these little shells all along the Connecticut coast and, and in abundance. Now, they used to be extremely abundant and they almost, then the industry was wiped out by pollution, just about, and now it's come back. But they're really, uh, I wanted to just tell the story of this activity, everything from eating to, you know, every aspect of it. And I tell people who see the film, once you've seen this, you'll know more than more about oystering than 99.999% of the people in the world. But, uh, but it teaches lessons about, specifically about pollution and about sea level rise. Those stories are embedded in there. And, but just overall, I mean, if people are invested in this idea of healthy oysters, healthy humans, it's all, it all wraps up together. You might be more thoughtful about what you flush down the toilet or, you know, or the fact that your septic system isn't really functioning properly. Like, for instance, we don't have septic systems here in the city, but out in the suburbs, a lot of it is septic. A very large percentage of septic systems don't really work. They work most of the time, but not when it rains and certainly not when it storms. Well, people need to realize that and they need to do something about it. Because otherwise, they very personally are, are polluting our environment very directly. With climate change threatening yeah. the world, the people yeah. involved in the pivot projects also incorporated faith into yeah. solutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite passages in your book states, in part, the Torah, it is written in the book of Genesis that God created the world in six days, but that creation was not finished. God left that for humans to do. Yeah. They were responsible for completing creation, a task that would never end, and later in Judaic writings, for repairing the world. Yeah. Is that your view of the role that your books and documentaries play? Well, I mean, that sounds mighty grandiose, but I mean, in my, in my little way, I like to try to help. Uh, I don't, I'm not powerful. I don't, my... My films, you know, they've started to be shown on public television in the Northeast. Maybe next step, it's broader than that. 
uh, I don't have money or power. <laughs> I just have some friends and we work together and we, we get these things done and we try to make them as good as we can and we try to influence people as best we can through showing the films, also having discussions of them. I like to, I love to show them in a live venue and have a discussion and hear what people have to say. So yeah, uh, that's repairing the world uh, is a very important role. I think we should tr first try not to, to, to minimize our damage on the world and then second, do what we can to help repair the world. It's part of your DIY passage, <laughs> yeah, I that's think. Right. Well. That's right, that's so, right. Well, thank you very much, Steve Ham, for being on Law, Life, and Culture. And thanks again to Harry Droz and Paul Bass. I'm Betsy Kim. For our last minute in the program, Steve, could you share the final song and scene in The Oyster Life, which I think by itself says quite a lot? What I'm going to do is I have a, a little clip. This is right at the end of the oystering life. And we were very fortunate to have uh, a singer-songwriter named uh, Chris Bousquet, who kind of connected with us and said, oh, here, I have this beautiful song that you can use in the film. It's called Gloria, and it's a song about, kind of, kind of from the point of view of an oysterman. And it's a beautiful song. Maybe it's about the end of a love affair. Maybe it's about the end of something else, uh, and very wistful. And at the end, of the film, uh, we use a piece of the music, and we uh, the, what's happening is there's a scene of an oyster boat coming in from the oyster grounds off of Norwalk and coming in into the harbor and then into a, a slip uh, at the dock. And it really kind of, it, the, the music that he gave us became kind of set the tone or really framed the beautiful, lyrical quality of the whole film and so yeah, i agree hopefully i'm going to be able to play this now no if not that's all right um, i think if you want to just <laughs> share any final words yeah you'd like about your documentaries and the pivot and where we pivot to next yeah yeah i'm very sorry about that i thought i had i had it queued up but it's it's not connecting but I'm going to stop the share now. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, just the, the last few thoughts is, I mean, I, I, I want to say that when I think of the powerful, kind of wonderful creative community forces that exist in New Haven, the most powerful one is the New Haven Independent. Uh, through the website, through the radio programs, it is truly a beautiful uh, community effort, you know, not profit, not aimed at making a profit, you know, doesn't have a big uh, carbon footprint, uh, but it's just a great example of the cellular economy, which I talked about a little bit before. And I think Paul had this vision years ago, and I think it's just gotten better and better and better. Uh, and I, I, I'm just so grateful that I live in a community that has a wonderful phenomenon like the independent. Thank you very much, Steve Ham. This is Harry Drove, and you're listening to WMH.
WHLP, 103.5 FM, New Haven.